0: You're listening to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, the Head of Talks and Ideas, and the episode you're about to hear was recorded at Antidote 2018. While we've got you, subscribe, rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com
1: slash ideas. Enjoy the show.
2: All the time. So, Lisa, what is it about jellyfish that you like so much? Well, (laughs) um, there's the fabulous Bazinga. Um, You know, it's a species that I named and classified as a new species in 2013. Um, It was found off the coast of Byron Bay by a very talented photographer. It's just a little guy about the size of a marble, and it's so different from all the other species of jellies that it's actually not only a new species, it's also a new genus, a new family, and a new suborder. So to put that into perspective, it's as different from even its most closely related species as a house cat is from a walrus. So it's really, really different. But it was hiding in plain sight right there off the coast of New South Wales by masquerading as the young of another species. And so when, you know, it came time to find a name for it, I chose Bazinga, which is the tagline from TV's The Big Bang Theory, where the character Sheldon Cooper uses Bazinga as a sort of, ha-ha, gotcha, Bazinga, ha-ha, you know. And so it just, um, yeah, I'm very fond of Bazinga, actually. And I'm extremely fond of the long, stingy, stringy thingy. Um, They are so strange in every way that they make me smile. So what you're looking at here, I've actually taken one photo and reproduced it numerous times, but they do occur in swarms like this, and they're so strange. So what you're looking at here, there's the float, which is filled with carbon monoxide. That's the round thing that looks like the eyeball. And then all the stingy, stringy, thingies hanging down. And that's not an individual. Each of them is actually a colony of a bunch of different pieces and parts that are all stuck together as a colony with different forms and functions. So quite an unusually, oh, just strange animal, and I love them for that. Some jellyfish are truly huge, like this sea nettle. This is Chrysiora acleos, um, the dark and mysterious god of the sun. And uh, it was my very first new species that I discovered years ago. And it was subsequently designated as the largest invertebrate, or animal without a backbone, the largest invertebrate discovered in the 20th century. And that's my firstborn, so I'm very proud. <laughs> um, the, the body is a meter across, and those fleshy, ruffly, hanging down bits get to eight meters long. This is a massive, massive animal. Um, There's also the Australian deadly box jellyfish, the world's most venomous animal. This animal is so unbelievably toxic that it kills healthy adults in as little as two minutes. It's also the only organism in the natural world that can stop the heart in a contracted state, like this full-grown Irukandji specimen that I have in this vial in my hand. So, if you don't know what Irukandji is, please forgive me for what I'm about to describe. It's all true. The sting starts out as fairly mild. About half of the people stung by an Irukandji don't even know they've been stung. The other half, they just dismiss it. It's nothing, it's just a mild irritation. After about 20 to 30 minutes, a bit faster in some species, but in this species, about 20 to 30, you start feeling incredibly strong lower back pain. And I'm talking, you know, severe. People describe it as feeling like an electric drill is drilling into their back, or like they're being hit in the kidneys with a cricket bat again and again and again for 12 to 24 hours. Within a minute or two of the back pain starting, you start feeling incredibly strong nausea and vomiting. People vi- uh, uh, victims vomit every minute to two minutes for up to about 12 hours. And so you've got the pain, you've got the vomiting, it's all pretty distressing, that's just the hint of what's to come. Within another couple of minutes, the syndrome, the whole syndrome, onsets, and it hits hard, and it hits fast. Difficulty breathing, profuse drenching sweating, where nurses talk about wringing out the bedsheets every 15 minutes, Um, uh, shooting spasms into the arms and the legs and behind the eyes, Um, full-body cramps like the bends, Um, a creepy skin feeling like, you know, some patients talk about worms burrowing in the skin or spiders crawling on the skin. Uh, One woman talked about it feeling like there were roasted chickens coming out of her skin. Okay, I, I don't know what that feels like, <laughs> but I can imagine that it's pretty distressing for her to go through. Um, suffice it to say, it's a pretty distressing thing. Um, also, um, many patients feel a uh, feeling of impending doom. It's not that all that stuff is going on and you're afraid you might die. No, it's much different. It's actually a psychotic effect of the syndrome itself that makes you so certain you're going to die, you actually beg your doctor to kill you just to put you out of your agony. So that's the syndrome that this little dude causes, and believe it or not, that version of the syndrome isn't usually lethal. But some other species, oh, and uh, seriously, so people make a full and complete recovery, usually in a couple of days or so, and, but some other species also cause severe hypertension or high blood pressure. And with these species, this is where we get into the really dangerous symptoms. Um, normal blood pressure is on the order of about 120 over 80, give or take, Um, Irukandji syndrome, when it causes the high blood pressure, we're talking 280 over 180, or even over 300. The instruments only go to 300, so we actually don't know how high the blood pressure goes with Irukandji syndrome, because it goes over that and keeps going. And that's where we start seeing the brain hemorrhages and the heart failures and the pulmonary edemas and things like this that are life-threatening. Believe it or not, we've only had two confirmed fatalities from Irikanji. Um, We think there's been many more, but here's the kicker. There's no mark, there's nothing to test for post-mortem in the body, and the mechanism of death is a heart attack or a stroke or drowning. So how would you know if you find somebody dead from one of those? You have no idea why. So Eric is kind of... Um, Oh, well, the perfect assassin, actually, (laughs) which is why I admire them so much. (laughs) (laughs) So, Box jellies and Irukandji's are horrifically lethal, but there's something about them that, to me, is even more fascinating, and that's their eyes. So what you're looking at here is a sensory knob from a box jelly. It's called a ropallium. and that eye-looking thing there, that is an eye. They have lenses and retinas and corneas like we do, and we know from experiments that they can see They navigate, they have courtship, they can tell different colors, like they see, but they don't have a brain. So we have not worked out quite how they do that. It's one of the big mysteries in science, and certainly that keeps me up at night going, how do they do that? Fascinating. Some jellyfish look like bugs. Some jellyfish cast off rainbows as they swim. Some jellyfish make great Christmas cards. (laughs) And who would have thought that the secret to immortality would be found in a jellyfish? The diminutive turritopsis is the first organism known that is truly, biologically immortal. All right, let's pivot for a moment and think about the oceans. Ah, uh uh-oh. I just did something bad. Sorry, they really should have had an easier-to-navigate gadget. (laughs) Or teach me how to use one. Um, Two-thirds of our oxygen comes from phytoplankton in the ocean. Phytoplankton are microscopic, single-celled algae. And two-thirds, think about that, that's two out of every three breaths we take come from the ocean. Half of humanity relies on the ocean for its primary source of protein. Half. So it is not an overstatement to say that the ocean is our life support system. I'd like you to imagine what would happen if things went wrong. What if we fished so much that we fished out the big fish and then moved to the little fish? This series of photos is from a uh, fishery, uh, 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 sorry, a sport fishing boat in the Florida Keys. And over time, the the number of the big resident fish has gone down, and the number of the uh, smaller transient fish has gone up. And then over time, the number of them has gone down too. What if so much of our plastic ended up in the ocean that it affected the organisms that live there and killed them? What if the chemicals and fertilizers from the land washed into the coastal waters and caused red tides and toxic algal blooms and killed the fish, like this fish kill in Brazil or this fish kill in Norway? or this fish kill in Louisiana, in the United States? What if the things that we were spewing into the air were warming up the air and changing the air chemistry, and causing the coral reefs to bleach, and causing the water to become more corrosive, so that the shells and skeletons of the organisms that live there leached away as if they had osteoporosis? Well, these things and more are happening. And the thing is, they're actually happening all at the same time for the organisms that live there. So you and I may think about pollution one day, and then you know, in a week think about climate change, and then a, a couple of weeks later think about overfishing, and so on. But for the organisms that live there, they're battling all of these every day, and many of these, in many places, have a synergistic effect so that the effect is actually worse than if they were separate. The signs are all around us. The ocean is waving red flags at us. But if you ever thought about what comes after the overfishing and the pollution and the warming, well, let me tell you, jellyfish. Ecosystem modeling by CSIRO indicates that as long as we continue to impact the oceans, jellyfish will continue to do better and better. Let me tell you a story. Let's go back to when I was about 18. Um, I joined an anti-nuclear protest in California. Uh, We were blockading a nuclear power plant at a place called Diablo Canyon, trying to prevent it from becoming operational. 1,900 people were arrested in peaceful protest. It was the largest act of civil disobedience in American history. But we failed. We were not able to stop it from powering up. Now, skip ahead more than a decade later. I was working with jellyfish in Los Angeles at a public aquarium, and the jellyfish that I was working with didn't seem like it was the the species that it was said to be, and I got curious about that. So I did a little bit of looking into it, and it turned out it had been named and classified 175 years earlier as a different species, but virtually ignored ever since. So I revalidated it in a technical publication, and gave it its rightful identity back, Aurelia labiata, the Pacific moon jellyfish. Now, skip ahead. More than another decade later, I'm living and working in Australia, and I open up the paper one morning, and I could barely believe my eyes. The Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant had sucked in thousands of Aurelia labiata into its intake pipes for its cooling system, and the jellyfish shut that sucker down, (laughs) go jellies. (laughs) So, my jellyfish, imagine how proud I was, seriously. (laughs) My jellyfish was able to accomplish what squillions of protesters, decades of protesters, including me, had not been able to do. Fair dinkum. And then, a couple of years later, it happened again with a different species. In fact, it happens a lot, not just to nuclear power plants, it happens to coal-fired power plants in this country and many others, it happens to desalination plants, it happens to data centers that rely on water cooling, it happens to ships, it happens to anything that's using seawater for cooling, sucking it in, or not just cooling, just sucking in seawater. This is the blue blubber. It's native to Australia, catastylus, an exquisitely beautiful animal. But let me tell you a story about the USS Ronald Reagan. About a decade ago, America's newest, most expensive aircraft supercarrier, the USS Ronald Reagan, it was built to take on any nation's military and withstand anything that nature could throw at it. It was on its maiden voyage. Its first port of call was the port of Brisbane, it pulls in and encounters this. And don't you know, the USS Ronald Reagan, this very expensive nuclear supercarrier, sucked in thousands of catastylus, the blue blubbers, into its pipes and had an emergency shutdown. Emergency evacuation, shut down all the onboard systems. Okay. Calm down, there were no screaming babies, there were no nuclear meltdowns, there were no explosions or anything like that. But you know, it was an extremely embarrassing situation for the U.S. Navy, and if I could just say to you know, this nice little personal audience here, yeah, man, it was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the, uh, the good old blue blubber. Seriously. From fisheries in Norway, to fisheries in China. From beachcombers in Broome, to birds trying to land in the Kimberley. To people wanting to swim with the whale sharks at Ningaloo Reef off Western Australia. Jellyfish are having a field day in places where we are disturbing the coasts. And as long as we continue to, we're gonna be giving them the conditions that are so perfect for them. What they do is extremely simple. We think of the food chain in very intuitive terms. Big things eat little things. Fast things eat slow things. Smart things eat stupid things. But jellyfish get around that. Jellyfish eat the eggs and larvae of fish and other organisms that are much faster and smarter and bigger than themselves. So they eat the eggs and larvae of fish, but they also eat the plankton that other species eat. So this double whammy of predation and competition allows jellyfish to change the food chain and take it over. Let me just leave you with one more story. This is a a picture of sandstone quarry in Wisconsin, in the United States. And those blobs that you see, okay, let me see if I can navigate this this time. Oh, hang on. So some of these blobs that you see, these are jellyfish that died and fossilized together. A jellyfish bloom fossilized from a half a billion years ago. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing, but what's even more amazing is this quarry has seven consecutive bedding planes of fossilized jellyfish blooms, like the pages in a history book. And what this tells us is that jellyfish have been blooming since the beginning of time. And it also tells us that while all these other organisms have evolved and grown legs and walked on land and grown wings and learned to fly and gone extinct, and all of this stuff has been happening with evolution, jellyfish have persisted exactly as they are through all of that because the way they are works, and it still works, And it tells us that as long as we keep impacting the ocean and giving them the conditions that help them work more, they're going to keep loving it. The future is in our hands. Thank you. Wow. Lisa Ann.
0: Great. We might have the house lights down a little bit and uh, so we can all see each other because we'd like to see you. There are mics here and here. We're going to talk for about 15 minutes, and then I'll I'll come to you for questions and comments and stories, maybe jellyfish encounters. And uh, perhaps we've got some marine biologists in the room. Have we? Any marine biologists? Anyway, hold that thought. (laughs) Thank you so much for that presentation. Um, And I guess it's a love-hate relationship, isn't it? Because these creatures are beguiling and they are beautiful and and they are horrible
2: (laughs) they are they are the beauty and the beast they are
0: i mean how do you've dedicated your life (laughs) since 82 (laughs) you started out in southern california studying these these little beasties these beautiful creatures these enigmatic creatures has it been a love-hate relationship for you
2: no it's been an epic love affair that is more amazing and more passionate and a stronger feeling than anything I ever could have imagined. They say true love lasts a lifetime, and I get it, I really get it. I, I, I love how weird they are and how beautiful they are and how dangerous they are, and I love how simple they are, and yet here we are, in competition with jellyfish, and they've got the home court advantage, and that blows my mind. Yeah, we it's think not we're a so relationship. smart. It's a love, love relationship. Love, love relationship. <laughs>
0: Speaking of love, um, I, just, I, I just have to get, I wouldn't normally get you to read, but I just love this particular <laughs> paragraph on the sex life of jellyfish. Uh,
2: <laughs> it's a delight. Read it. <laughs> um, Jellyfish sex is like something straight out, of a science fi- uh, straight out of science fiction, except that there is nothing fictional about it. The methods jellyfish use for reproduction are beyond the realms of Hollywood, and the numbers involved may seem unbelievable. Millions of moon jellyfish aggregate into a massive orgy, same time, same place, every day, for months. Tens of thousands of eggs is not uncommon, per jellyfish, per day, every day for months. Hermaphroditism, cloning, external fertilization, self-fertilization, courtship and copulation, fission, fusion, cannibalism, you name it, jellyfish do it while they're doing it. (laughs) It's a love affair.
0: (laughs) It's a love affair for jellyfish. I mean, their sex life for a start is extraordinary. These critters have Not one, not two, but 13 ways
2: of cloning themselves. Just (laughs) describe what that is. Yeah, so here's the thing. Okay, I want you guys to appreciate. Cloning is amazing, right? Like you think about, wow, cloning, get out, that's cool. Yeah, jellyfish clone as a natural part of their life cycle, and cloning isn't enough. They clone in 13 different ways. So they have this weird, weird life cycle that really is their secret weapon. So... The jellyfish is just part of the life cycle. They have two adult stages. So the jellyfish is one adult stage, and when they have babies, they don't grow up to look Like jellyfish, they grow up to look like little tiny polyps or like little sea anemones or little coral polyps, tiny little things stuck to the bottom. And that's the other adult stage. And they clone and when the conditions are, uh, well actually sorry, so they just clone and clone and clone replicates of themselves. And then when the conditions are right, they bud off by cloning baby jellyfish. Better than hungry and you know, growing fast and all that. And then we end up with the jellyfish again. So that's just a couple of the ways that they clone. But you know, the Medusa stage, you know, they can uh, chop into bits. So, okay, people tell me, I love this, this is so funny. I love when this happens. People say, oh yeah, no, I'm doing my part. You know, I'm trying to get rid of jellyfish. So every time I see them when I'm out scuba diving, I cut them in half. No, (laughs) don't cut them in half. Excellent. (laughs) They heal so quickly. (laughs) Like in just a few days, you've now got two jellyfish. Like it's amazing. They are zombies, I'm telling you. They're cool. (laughs)
0: Which is why I know there's a team in Victoria using jellyfish, I think, to look at tissue repair. Yeah. You know? Um, And isn't there there a lab somewhere where since the 1930s or the 1950s, there's one polyp colony that has been cultivated for decades. Yeah.
2: So I've actually worked with this colony of polyps. Um, There was a scientist in 1935 that started this uh, colony of moon jelly polyps, and that colony is still going, and about 20 years ago, the people working with it sent me some of the polyps from that colony, and I got to play with them, and it was amazing to work with something that, you know, was so old, and, you know, I mean, they were still very much alive, because the Polyps themselves don't live very long, although we don't know how long they live, but they clone, and so, you know, they just keep, like, Amazing. pieces of themselves keep living. Amazing. You know? That,
0: that, that um, fossil bed that you displayed from Wisconsin, you've, have you been there?
2: I have. I, I worked at it during my PhD. I mean, yeah. These
0: incredible, for a start, I mean, a soft-tissued organism embedded in ancient rock,
2: that's kind of a freak
0: anyway. You know
2: well, yes and no. So jellyfish do fossilise, not only that, but there's some amazing fossil jellies out there. The Flinders Ranges in South Australia, for example, amazing, amazing preservative, uh, sorry, preserved jellies. And, you know, Russia and Namibia, some amazing specimens that you just go, I don't know how that preserved like that. Um, so what they illustrate, though, is that there was...
0: 565 million years ago, a time when jellyfish dominated, as you are suggesting... They
2: ruled the world.
0: ..they do now and are about to, in every ecosystem, in every part of our watery world, that we are codependent on. So there was another time... So let
2: me just clarify. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, good. No, please. (laughs) So right now we're in a really interesting time in history. There are many ecosystems around the world that have already flipped to being dominated by jellyfish. But there are also many, many ecosystems around the world that have not flipped. So we're at that stage where we can look at some ecosystems and go, oh my, that went very badly. (laughs) And then there's other ecosystems where we can look at and go, "Uh uh-oh, that's kinda walking down that path there, isn't it? Including Antarctica. Yeah. That amazed me. Yeah. Jellyfish are taking over. Yeah, the waters of it, Antarctica. It's, it's amazing in Antarctica. It's really simple. Um, the krill feed on algae on the underside of the edge of the sea ice. And so as the edge of the sea ice gets smaller and smaller, of course there's less of that edge, right? But jellyfish feed on algae that are not on the edge of the sea ice. They're just in the open water. And so it, it, the balance is shifting, you know?
0: What was happening in the world 565 million years ago,
2: O2? Oh <laughs> it was very gelatinous. <laughs> get back it, very jelly-like, that meant that they thrived? Oh, they didn't have any predators or competitors. And that's exactly what we're doing for them today. We are taking out the things that eat them and the things that compete with them. And, you know, if jellyfish could think this through, they'd be going, yes, we love humans. But you know, without a brain, they're probably not thinking too much. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. So, I mean, one of the
0: one of the interesting things is that they seem to love. It's kind of incredible to read your documentation of this. They everything that we do that's bad for so many other species in the ocean, including our own well-being. Jellyfish, sorry. Have a, yes, have a little sorry. <laughs> proper cough.
3: Oh,
2: sorry.
0: But everything, they lo- everything that, that does us damage and other species damage, they just seem to go, oh, that's for me. I love that. Yeah. Pollution,
2: eutrophication, they uh, acidification. They don't care. Yeah. That's they it, p- they're just, they're amazing. So some things that we're doing are directly beneficial to jellyfish, like warming water, for example. Jellyfish love warming water. It revs up their metabolism. They grow faster, they eat more, they breed more, they live longer to do more of it. Sorry. (coughs) Darn it. Sorry. Anyway, so they love warming water. It really just revs them up. But other things, like overfishing, they don't care, except that it takes out their predators and competitors. Pollution. They don't care, except that it kills off their predators and competitors. You know, all these other things, they're just like, yeah, man, who cares? Even you know? the
0: acidification of, I mean, even the, <coughs> the reduction in oxygen in water, which is happening as the
2: oceans warm too, Oh, they, they seem to they, like that as well. It, they love hypoxia, low oxygen, or anoxia, no oxygen, because here's the thing kills off everything else, jellyfish can actually store oxygen in their jelly tissues. So they can go down and slurp up the dead stuff and then come back up and recharge their oxygen supply and then go back down and slurp some more. They're great. They don't care. They just look at all this stuff and they're like, yeah, yeah, and they just keep doing what they're doing that they've been doing for a half a billion or a billion years. They are the ultimate survivors Uniquely so, they're the cockroaches of the
0: sea. They are, except Uh-oh. they're a I just whole lost lot more. My thing. Oh, have you?
2: <laughs> it's all right. I'll be fine. Ignore we'll keep, me.
0: We, we can use a spare mic yeah, if need be. Need have you've got a handheld. Sorry,
2: guys. That's all right. D- so. Just hang on to actually, it while we're talking. Yeah. Can you hear me? Is that all right?
0: Sort of. Not really. No, okay, yeah. Okay. Just hold it up just a smidge, and we'll sort that? out a, a that, remote. Can you hear yeah, me? Yep. Yep. That's okay, good. But we'll sort something out. So you have to admire them, actually. I do, because they are truly resilient beings. So imagining a time, and the scale kind of astounded me, and it astounds a lot of people, I gather, that you speak to, even uh, the wonderful Sylvia Earle, who's this phenomenal marine biologist. They call her her the deepness. deepness. <laughs> she didn't even know the impact that you've documented in these books?
2: No, so here's the thing. You know, we've all heard of overfishing. We've all heard of climate change. We've all heard of pollution. You know, we're aware of these things. But we don't really have that conversation about what comes next. And all of these people, the, the great thinkers in conservation and you know, environmental stuff today, it, you know, when they read my book, People got hold of me and they said, oh my God, I had no idea. You know, people like you know, David Suzuki and Tim Flannery and Sylvia Earle and you know, these amazing people that you know, are my heroes who just went, oh my God, I had no idea. And we've all had no idea. Jellyfish, these simple creatures have just been drifting under the radar, literally.
0: So, thinking about a future, I think we've got a backup
2: mic for you, or we'll <laughs> oh, fix it, it
0: up.: thanks. Yeah, we'll fix it up. And okay. as we're doing that, uh, I'm going to uh, remind you of these two mics, and you might want to start making a way to okay, them uh, to ask a question and uh, offer a comment or a, s- a jellyfish story. <laughs> um, OK, so imagining a time, you talk about the radical simplification of ecosystems with the arrival of massive blooms of jellyfish. So we might just reach a point, I mean, is that necessarily a bad thing? No. <laughs> could we, could ecosystems adapt? Might other species that predate upon jellyfish start taking over? Might there be another kind of blooming of biodiversity that is resilient to jellyfish blooms? Just yeah. thinking about
2: that morphing of environments. Look, I'm glad you asked that. So. The ocean, sorry, it came out again. <laughs> um, the, the ocean, any ecosystem, doesn't just stop and wait uh, You know, for the ecosystem to come back, right? It doesn't stop and wait for a species. Um, it, it, the ecosystem is amoral. It just keeps going somehow. So as these ecosystems are simplifying and jellyfish are taking over the role of top predator, um, you know, it does change who's there. Excuse me. This is embarrassing. No, I'm don't, so be. Sorry, no, no you guys. don't worry a bit. But <laughs>
0: while you're <laughs> having a good old cough, yeah. can we get a, a handheld mic? That Would that be
2: possible? Work. And then I don't have to keep messing with this. Even
0: just the one off the stage, and then we'll all use that one. Is that possible? We've got mics up there, up the top, too. There's one on number three, two, one. And could we use that spare mic? So, oh, beautiful! Mental note, you guys. Let's hair. just do. it. Oh, look, here can be Madonna.
2: Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, Thanks, that's perfect. All right. Yeah, great. It's a hair thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. And we just take start it, start off. it yeah, off. Yeah, good. Oh, okay.
2: <laughs> now I've just destroyed it. <laughs> you yeah. know, they're never going to ask gonna, me back.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> good. Adaptation. No, none of that ever happened. Adaptation. Could so <laughs> could could we? Just to have a new new environment that accommodates jellyfish and is yeah, an absolutely. interesting environment.
2: absolutely. But here's the thing. It just depends, you know, like how much do you like, you know, food and, you know, <laughs> oxygen and things like that. So if you're perfectly happy to only have one out of every three breaths, and you're perfectly happy to only have half of your food, then yeah, sure, that's a great situation. But, you know, I kind of think that that's not really what we have in mind, right? So, um, look, the funny thing is we talk about Building resilient ecosystems. You know, this is kind of a a buzzword, right? We're supposed to be building resilience in our ecosystems. Yeah, man, if you want a resilient ecosystem, let it convert over to being dominated by jellyfish. That sucker is hard to, you know, pry out of that situation. We've got situations around the world, many, many places, that have actually flipped to being dominated by jellyfish. There's no fish. There's no you know, no marine mammals, no seabirds, or, well, not zero, but very little, put because it that way. Because the fish are going, and yeah. all their
0: food supply goes. That's exactly... And all the mammals' food supply yeah, goes. the
2: whole ecosystem has completely changed to being something that doesn't work for us. So it works great for them. Jellies are totally happy in that place. So it's a nice, happy ecosystem in that respect, but not from our point of view. We'll come to... What next?
0: In a moment. But let's grab some questions. Thank you so much.
1: G'day, um, Lisa. My name's Martin. Hi, Martin. Um, I'm going to ask you to jump into a a local, very contentious issue, um, which is the issue of marine parks in in the Sydney area. It's very topical right now because just a few weeks ago, the government um, proposed, finally, a plan for a a slight increase in marine sanctuary areas between um, Newcastle and Wollongong. Currently, we've got about 1% of that whole area has any sort of sanctuary area. And they've, have, they've proposed to increase that to 2.4%, which is still tiny. And, and I happen to know um, through um, uh, marine biologists that I know that in, in the, the current sanctuary areas, the biodiversity is about double what it is outside. Um, so, you know, that really worries me. And, you know, the number of um, fish is much higher. Um, so anywhere that's there, any level of fishing, it's, it's, it looks like in a pretty bad state. But there's a huge um, protest against this slight increase in, in, in the marine park size. I'm just um, wondering what what you think are the... Risks of us hitting that sort of jellyfish uh, um, yeah, infestation level in in the local area. I mean, how uh, is that a long way away, or do you think that's a that's a, a near term risk? What so, in think? the
0: Sydney area. Yeah,
1: in the Sydney area.
0: Yeah, what do you know the,
2: about the Sydney jellies? Yeah, not a lot. <laughs> so it's interesting. As soon as you said marine parks, it occurred to me. I've never thought anything about marine parks. They're oh, completely oh. off my radar. And it occurred to me as you were saying that, that maybe that's because, um, you know, uh, the things that catch my attention are when something is flipped to being dominated by jellyfish and perhaps marine parks just aren't like, I mean, you're talking about, you know, double the biodiversity. Well, that sounds like a pretty healthy space. And so, yeah, marine parks are completely off my radar. Could could jellies (laughs)
0: infiltrate marine parks? Um,
2: how can how do you keep yeah, them I out? Well, I, I, you couldn't, but yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, the way that you keep jellyfish out of an ecosystem, well, you can't keep them out, but I suppose you can keep them from taking over. And the way that you do that is to have a healthy ecosystem with, you know, a lot of biodiversity and a, you know, functioning ecosystem with low impacts from you know, same old stuff, fishing, pollution, you know, these kind of things. So that's how you guard against jellyfish taking over is don't mess with it, you know, like, let it stay a good ecosystem. But that just doesn't seem to be something that Homo sapiens is very good at. So look, I'm, I'm, I feel terribly inadequate in answering your question, because I just, I I don't,
0: there's a project.
2: No. Yeah, exactly. There's yeah. a project. So, you know, I used to have a, a radio show for quite a few years called um, Window on Science with Dr. Gershwin. And the sort of tagline on the website was see if you can stump the scientist. And um, gold stars, dude.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thanks for the
0: question. And yeah, we have another you. one. Thank you. Please make your way to the mics if you'd like to participate in the conversation.
3: Well, thank you, Dr Gershman. I'm so, so happy I came this morning. Thank um, you. I was prompted to come today because I am an ocean swimmer and I swim at Coogee Beach. And if you want to know about jellyfish, um, about two weeks ago when we had some really warm weather, we, we all went swimming and we started swimming in this jelly-type gelatinous like swimming tapioca. And I thought, oh, there's a bit of a blobby <laughs> thing happening here. And then we swam a bit further. Can and I across- just
2: say, I love that that visual of swimming tapioca, (laughs)
3: may I borrow it? (laughs) Certainly, it was one of my colleagues, one of my swimming mates that that, um, said it, yeah, and it was, it was like we were swimming, we we swam one way and we thought, oh, well, we'll swim out of this, and then it was still there, and then we swam the other way, and it was still there, and it was was the weirdest experience, I've been swimming for probably about five years, very regularly at Coogee Beach, which I'm very privileged to be able to do, and um, but it, was, it scared me actually. I um, I just thought, my goodness, what is going on and um, what is going on? That Why did it yeah, scare you? What was that feeling? I think it was because it's a beautiful um, activity to, to swim in the ocean and every time you swim in the ocean, we talk about climate change. Um, when you're actually in the ocean, you see every day it changing, the beach changing, you see fish, you see all sorts of activity there and it's just a beautiful thing to do and also the temperature of the water Mm. and it scared me thinking what happens if we can't swim in the water what what happens if we don't have don't have this activity I know it's Mm. um but then I thought my goodness if the climate's changing then we won't have those privileges of being be able to um enjoy enjoy activities let alone Breathe. Say, breathe. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, breathe. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> but, I mean, that, that's an interesting question, yeah. isn't it? Because there's also... That's a way that we sample that world and come yeah. to understand it through swimming in it.
2: Exactly. It's how we interact with it. You know, um, what you experienced sounds to me a lot like um, either hydromeduce, which are just small, clear... Yeah.
3: It was tiny with, like, tiny... Almost like string, like the little
2: black dots. Oh yes, okay. That was the other one I was going to say, ah. salps. So oh. you encountered salps, S-A-L-P, as Gosh. in Paul. And salps are fantastic. I didn't put them up there because you can't cover everything, right? But um, salps are actually in our phylum. They're more closely related to humans oh. than they are to the stinging jellies. And so they wouldn't have stung. You wouldn't have felt no, anything I didn't from feel them. Stinging, no. But they're Weird. amazing. So they grow. You want something like gobsmacking jellyfish, right? Salps grow 10% of their body length per hour. <laughs> Whoa. They go through two generations in a day. So you're born at noon. Wow. By midnight, you're a parent. And by noon the next day, you're a grandparent. <laughs> Seriously. Like, salps are amazing. But they eat so much. They, they uh, target phytoplankton, but they take in gobs of everything else along the way. But they eat so much to power that much growth that they just absolutely wipe out every living thing in the water, and then nothing else can eat. They're amazing. Also, and can I just say, so this is something I've been kind of working on in the shadows. There's some kind of... Here and there, little spotty suggestions, but I, I don't have it congealed into a well-tested hypothesis yet. It's still in that, you know, speculative hypothesis stage. Um, it looks like salps are able to concentrate the toxic algae, and then they act like a toxic bullet when something eats them. And so we've got these, um, it, you know, every now and then a bunch of dead dolphins or dead seals or dead, you know, dugongs or something like that will wash up. And in their gut sometimes are large numbers of salps. Sometimes the gut contents aren't reported or sometimes they're not even examined. But I do have spotty reports here and there of Uh, lots of salps in the gut and so it looks like the salps may be playing a role in um, mass kills of marine mammals and possibly uh, seabirds and large fish as well so that's you know I don't watch this space maybe someday I'll be able to crack that one but pretty cool stuff so there you go you know meet your cousins the salps (laughs) thanks for your question thank you number two
0: this are we on Just keep talking, just keep talking. That's it. There you
3: are. (laughs) This might be a bit of a silly question, but does anyone eat jellyfish? Are there any countries where jellyfish is is a meal?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, for at least 5,000 years, the Chinese have considered jellyfish to be a delicacy. And many other cuisines also consider jellyfish as a delicacy. If you go into any Chinese restaurant here in Sydney down in Hobart, in Los Angeles, I mean wherever. You go into a Chinese restaurant, jellyfish will probably be on the menu. If it's not on the menu, if you ask them for it, they'll have it, they'll serve it. What does it taste like? Oh yeah, that's different. And do they taste different? Well. Uh, Across species. Oh, no, they taste the same. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) they're very boring. Okay, here's the thing. Um, How many, let me see a show of hands. How many of you guys have actually tasted jellyfish? Once and never again. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> oh, seriously. Uh, so, So here's the thing. They don't have a taste of their own. They take on the taste of the sauce that they're in. But they have a really weird mouthfeel that many people really like. Here's the delicacy part, right? No, man, not me, okay? I don't like this weird feel. It's like a cross between cucumbers and rubber bands. And I don't like it. So, I don't have any moral thing like, you know, oh no, don't eat my babies. No, man, eat my babies, okay? But, you know, seriously, like, it's, it's the mouthfeel thing. It's that cucumber rubber band thing that doesn't work for me.
3: So, <laughs> is encouraging more people to eat jellyfish potentially a way of slowing this massive growth?
2: Now, I saw that coming. I did. I really did. So, this is a very common question I get. And a lot of people, if you Google uses for jellyfish or something like that, there's a lot of Uh, companies making money on, you know, ways to use jellyfish to sort of, the idea is fish out the jellyfish and give fish a chance, right? It doesn't quite work like that. So the problem is if you fish out the jellyfish, then it just makes room for the next pest in line because you still haven't dealt with the problem of why the fish are in low numbers in the first place. So fishing out the jellyfish It's not the answer. I mean, it's satisfying, but it's still, I I think it's just not gonna pan out quite right. Um, The other problem with fishing out the jellyfish is they're very hard to overfish. There are a couple of examples where we have overfished jellyfish. They
0: are so prolific.
2: Yeah, but it's not only the prolific. Remember I explained about their life cycle with the weird polyp stage and all that? So if you take out a fish, you've now taken out all of the genetic progeny that that fish would have ever had. That fish's lineage stops right there, right? If you take out a jellyfish, so it's clonal. So it's like taking an apple from underneath an apple tree that you know, fell off the tree last night. The apple tree is still making more apples. You take away an apple, it doesn't affect Anything about the future of apples from that apple tree. And so that's the problem with jellyfish. We can fish all the jellyfish out of a bay and tomorrow they're back again. They're amazing. I'm vexed
0: by this. We'll get to the, <laughs> the solutions in a tick. Um, thank, you. thank you so much for Excellent that great question. question. Thank yeah. you.
3: Thank you.
2: You asked
0: those. Spot on. Thank you.
3: I have a bit of a morbid question. Um, how does the average jellyfish die? Especially with thoughts of immortality and is it old age or
2: what? yeah yeah no it's a good question um, so uh, certainly as winter time approaches and you know the sea gets rougher that tends to break them up um, as you know there's less plankton because the water is cooling down and the productivity is lowering that affects them as well um, Yeah, I think old age must certainly have some kind of effect, but we don't know how long they live. So um, the moon jelly, which is always thought to only live a couple of months in the wild. Um, A friend of mine at Monterey Bay Aquarium raised some moon jellies that were still very happy at 13 years, and then she went on vacation and the person who was filling in for her added some wild moon jellies And she couldn't tell them apart anymore. Oh, wow. (laughs) So it was a real bummer, you know? I mean, we almost were able to find out how long they live. But um, look, different things kill them. So the immortal one is a bit of a different case. And, And by the way, there's at least four species that are now known to be immortal. They're all jellies. but So what happens with them is... Normally, when an organism dies, you know it decays and it, you know, the cells come apart and all that, right? Um, with jellyfish that are immortal, it's a bit different. They die because maybe the researcher goes, you know, or maybe they just die or whatever. Um, but I think in the lab with the immortal ones, it's usually, you know, um, and then it begins to decay and the cells come apart, which is totally normal. But then the cells reaggregate into the polyp stage. And then the polyps start cloning more polyps. And then when the conditions are right, they bud off more medusae, And so goes the life cycle again. Do you ever have nightmares about these creatures? I wouldn't describe it as nightmares. <laughs> it's sort of the it's
0: day of the Triffids writ in, large. In <laughs>
2: my mind, it's more like, yes! <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's grab another question, if we may. Thanks so sure. much for that question. Every question is leading us down another interesting rabbit hole.
4: <laughs> yeah, my name is Lee. For 20 Hi, years Lee. I've been swimming at Northbridge Baths, which is a tidal pool up in Sydney. Currently we're at the end of a moon jelly bloom. Um, when they started, this time, first time I've seen it, they're about as big as your little fingernail. Yeah. And then they grow to about that size. Um, my wife has had the unfortunate reaction around the neck.
2: Right. Having,
4: looking like mozzie bites. Oh yeah, yeah. But the big, the other thing we have here, there, also, we've not had them for three years. 2015 was the last time. I take the temperature of the water there, and it's currently 14 degrees. Um, in 2015 was the last bloom we had of jimbles. Ah, jimbles. Yeah. Yes.
2: So, uh, uh, excuse me. So, yep. do you have a question on that?
4: Yes. Yeah, I just okay, wanted to explain so people oh. can
2: find out what a jimble is. Um, it's a type of box jelly, but it's not deadly. It looks like an Irukandji, but it doesn't cause Irakanji syndrome. But it's a fabulous creature with the eyes and all that. Mm. So I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but yeah.
4: <laughs> From all the um, information I've read on them, they say that they love warm water and they come after about 20 degrees and higher. We get them from 16 degrees lower.
2: Yes, you do. <laughs> is
4: that true? Yes. I mean, I mean I, it's true because I take the temperature. Yeah. I'm just wondering why here we're getting them at 16 and down.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, the Sydney gimbal is a wintertime animal. And I'm not sure why, although I would love to talk to you more about your record keeping. Because, <laughs> I mean, seriously, I would, I would love to tap into your data, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, uh-huh. guys, you know, just doing a bit of science here, <laughs> you know. But um, so, um, so the gimbal is a really amazing creature. Um, it, how many of you remember the Sydney Olympics, right? Yeah, okay. You know, big thing, lots of sports. Um, so <laughs> leading up to the Sydney Olympics, the organizers got a hold of me. I was in Berkeley at the time, and they got a hold of me, and they were in a blind panic. Because the place that they were gonna have the um, triathlon was swarming with gimbals. And they were like, ah, we gotta get these out of here, you know, and they were absolutely freaked. They wanted to bring me here, they wanted to remove every single gimbal that was there, they wanted to net the place off. Oh my God, like the expense of netting it off, right? You know, and, and I kept saying, don't worry they'll die off. And they're like, no, 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 we can't take that risk. We can't take that risk. You've got to come here. And I was like, calm down. I would love a free trip to Sydney, but here's the thing. You don't need to. They'll die off. Oh, no, 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 we can't, you know. And they were saying, oh, you know, these athletes have spent their whole life um, preparing for this moment. You know, a fraction of a second is a record. We can't take the risk. And I said, They'll die off. Calm down, grasshopper. They'll die <laughs> off, you know. And they were absolutely freaked. And, of course, the week before the Olympics started, they died, they died off. off. <laughs> so, so your gimbal is a wintertime animal. You're spot on. There you go. Yeah,
4: yeah. They um, last for three months, though. Yes. Three months. So
2: this year they were actually quite common in...
4: No, no, jimble's not this year. 2015 was the
2: last time. No, no, no. They were this year, but they were in April, May this year. Maybe not in your bay, but in in New South Wales. I'm going to put you two together. Yeah, hunt me down, And thankfully there's a book signing (laughs) afterwards. uh, (laughs) So you can continue this
0: conversation, exchange emails and hot data. Um, (laughs) We've got a minute 20, and because this is the Antidote Festival, we want a jellyfish antidote. (laughs) What can we do? What, because... Just simply stopping overfishing, in fact, is not sufficient. Mm. Mm. In fact, it can not improve things at all. Mm. So have you gone all silent all of a sudden? What can we do?
2: Yeah, so the truth is I don't think we can do anything about the jellyfish problem. I think we can change how we interface with it but I don't think we can stop them. Because unless we're prepared as a species, homo sapiens, unless we're prepared to stop fishing, stop polluting, stop warming, stop ballast water introduction of things, stop coastal construction, stop agricultural waste flowing into coastal waters. Stop using plastic. Stop using plastic. Unless we're prepared to, you know, stop doing the things that we do as humans. I don't think that we can actually change the trajectory that we're heading towards for a more gelatinous future, but I do feel that we can change how we interface with it. We can adapt. How? Uh.
0: <laughs> right. The zombies are coming.
2: Yeah. So. Um, uh, so... I've got 18 seconds. I know. Oh, God. I know,
0: but I really need... I need some <laughs> solar solutions. <laughs> okay, solutions. Otherwise, I'm going to um, have nightmares all week. So,
2: look, um, so I'm working on... What uh, one thing project. would you change as well in that list? I think for industries. So I'm working on a project right now with CSIRO, and this is not a shameless plug, I promise. It's just the best answer I have. So I'm working on uh, building a project right now with CSIRO Um, that's a risk assessment and management framework for jellyfish blooms and harmful algal blooms around the world. And I'm hoping that this will at least help industries be able to have forewarning that a crisis is about to happen so that they can take actions to avoid the crisis. I still don't think we can do anything about the blooms, but I think we can, change how we deal with them. And what
0: one thing would we change amongst many?
2: Oh, yeah. So if you're an aquaculture facility that's about to have a mass kill of your fish, move the fish. If you're a power plant that's about to have an emergency shutdown, shut it down in a uh, a controlled way. Um, You know, things like that. Yeah, Okay. So adaptation is the motto of our story today. Yeah. Look, it's a
0: real delight to have you here in Sydney and at the Opera House here thank on you. Sunday. You are going to do a book signing out in the main foyer where the bookshop is. I hope you can join lisa and there. I'm really delighted that you've been here to join us this morning as well. So please thank Dr. and Gershwin.
2: Thank you.
0: Well done. Thank you.